Section 31 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2 by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 16. From Agra to Singapore. Part 1. A couple of miles from the cantonment, and the broad Jumna is crossed on a pontoon bridge, the buoys of which are tubular iron floats instead of boats. Crocodiles are observed floating, motionless as logs, their heads turned upstream and their snouts protruding from the water. The road is undulating for a few miles, and then perfectly level, as indeed it has been most of the way from Lahore. Pilgrims carrying little red flags, and sometimes bits of red paper tied to sticks, are encountered by the hundred. Mayhap they have come from distant points to gaze upon the beauties of the Taj Mahal, the fame of which resounds to the farthermost corners of India. They can now see it across the Jumna, resting on the opposite bank, looking more like a specimen of the architecture of the skies than anything produced by mere earthly agency. A partly dilapidated Mohammedan mosque in the middle of a forty-acre walled reservoir, overgrown with water-lilies, forms a charming subject for the attention of my camera. The mosque is approached from an adjacent village by a viaduct of twenty arches, apropos of its peculiar surroundings. One might easily fancy the Muezzin's call to prayer taking the appropriate form of Come where the water-lilies bloom, instead of the orthodox Allah il Allah. Villages are now rows of shops lining the road on either side, something as much as half a mile in length. The entrance is usually marked by a shrine containing a hideous idol, painted red and finished off with cheap-looking patches of gold or silver tinsel. In the larger towns, evidences of English philanthropy loom conspicuously above the hut-like shops and inferior houses of the natives in the form of large and substantial brick buildings, prominently labelled Ferozabad Hospital or government-free dispensary. A discouraging headwind blows steadily all day, and it is near sunset when the thirty-seven miles to Spikarabad is covered. A mile west of the town, I am told, is the Rohilkund Railway, the Dak Bungalow and the Bungalow of an English Saib. Quite suitable for a one-mile racetrack as regards surface is this little side-stretch, and a spin along its smooth length is rewarded by a most comfortable night at the bungalow of Mr. S., an engineer of the Ganges Canal, a magnificent irrigating enterprise on the banks of which his bungalow stands. Several schoolboys from Allahabad are here spending their vacation, shooting peafowls and fishing. Wild boars abound in the tall tiger-grass of the Shikogbabad district, and the silence of the gloaming is broken by the shouting of natives driving them out of their cane-patches, 
where, if not looked after pretty sharply, they do considerable damage in the night. A curious illustration of native vanity and love of fame is pointed out here in the case of a wealthy gentleman who has spent some thousands of rupees in making and maintaining a beautiful flower garden in the midst of a worthless piece of sandy land close by the railway station. Close by is an abundance of excellent ground where his garden might have been easily and inexpensively maintained. Asked the reason for this strange preference and seemingly foolish choice, he replied, When people see this beautiful garden in the midst of the barren sand, they will ask, Whose garden is this? And thus will my name become known among men. If, on the other hand, it were planted on good soil, nobody would see anything extraordinary in it, and nobody would trouble themselves to ask to whom it belongs. Youthful Davids, perched on frail platforms that rise above the sugar-cane, indigo, or cotton crops, shout and wield slings with dexterous aim and vigour to keep away vagrant crows, parrots, and wild pigs, all along the line of my next day's ride to Main Puri. In many fields these young slingers and their platforms are but a couple of hundred yards apart, the range of their weapons covering the entire crop area around. Sometimes I endeavour to secure one of these excellent subjects for my camera, but the youngsters invariably clamber down from their perch at seeing me dismount and become invisible among the thick cane. To the music of loud rolling thunder I speed swiftly over the last few miles, and dash beneath the porch of the post-office just in the nick of time to escape a tremendous downpour of rain. How it pours, some time in India, converting the roads into streams and the surrounding country into a shallow lake in the space of a few minutes. Hundreds of youths, naked save for the redeeming breech-cloth, disport themselves in the great warm shower-bath, chasing one another sportively about and enjoying the downpour immensely. The rain ceases, and with water flinging from my wheel, I seek the civil lines and the dak bungalow three miles farther down the road. Very good meals are dished up by the chowkidar at this bungalow, who seems an intelligent and enterprising fellow, but the lean and slippered punkawalla is a far less satisfactory part of the accommodation. Twice during the night the punker ceases to wave and the demon of prickly heat instantly wakes me up, and both times do I have to turn out and arouse him from the infolding arms of Morpheus. On the second occasion the old fellow actually growls at being disturbed. He is wide awake and obsequious enough, however, at bakshish time in the morning. The clock at the little English station church chimes the hour of six as I resume my journey next morning along a glorious avenue of overarching shade trees to Bogan, where my road, which from Delhi has been a branch road, again merges into the grand trunk. Groves of tall toddy palms are a distinguishing feature of Bogan and a very pretty little Hindu temple marks the southern extremity of the town. A striking red and gilt shrine, in a secluded grove of peoples, 
arrests my attention a few miles out of town, and repairing thither, my rude intrusion fills with silent surprise a company of gentle Brahmin youths and maidens paying their matutinal respects to the representation of Kamadeva, the Hindu Cupid and God of Love. They seem overwhelmed with embarrassment at the appearance of a Saib, but they say nothing. I explain that my object is merely a Tomasha of the exquisitely carved shrine, and a young Brahmin, with his smooth, handsome face fantastically streaked with yellow, follows silently as I walk around the building. His object is evidently to satisfy himself that nothing is touched by my unhallowed Christian hands. Seven miles from Bogan is the camping ground of Bayo, where in December 1869 an English soldier was assassinated in the night while standing sentry beneath a tree. His grave, beneath the gnarled mango where he fell, is marked by two wooden crosses, and the tree trunk is all covered with memorial plates nailed there from time to time by the various troops who have camped here on their winter marches. Twenty-eight miles are duly reeled off when, just outside a village, I seek the shade of a magnificent banyan. The kindly villagers, unaccustomed to seeing a sahib without someone attending to his comfort, bring me a charpoy to recline on, and they inquire anxiously, Roti? Pani? Doctor? Am I hungry, thirsty, or ill? Nor are these people actuated by mercenary thoughts, for not a piece will they accept on my departure. Nay, sahib, nay they reply eagerly, smiling and shaking their heads. Peace, nay. The narrow-gauge Rohilkud railway now follows along the Grand Trunk Road, being built on one edge of the broad roadbed. Miran Sarai, a station on this road, is my destination for the day. There, however, no friendly Dak bungalow awaits my coming, and no hostelry of any kind is to be found. The native station-master advises me to go to the superintendent of police across the way. The police officer, in turn, suggests applying to the station-master. The police thana there is a large establishment, and a number of petty prisoners are occupying railed-off enclosures behind the arched entrance. They accost me through the bars of their temporary cage-like prison with smiles and Saib spoken in coaxing tones, as though moved by the childish hope that I might perchance take pity on them, and order the police to set them at liberty. A small and pardonable display of bounce at the railway station finally secures me the quarters reserved for the accommodation of English officers of the road, and a Mohammedan employee about the station procures me a supply of curried rice and meat. The station-master himself is a high-caste Hindu and can speak English. He politely explains the difficulty of his position, as an extra holy person, in being unable to personally attend to the wants of a sahib. On discovering that I have taken up my quarters in the station, the police superintendent comes over and begs permission to send over my supper, 
as he is evidently anxious to cultivate my good opinion, or at all events to make sure of giving no offence in failing to accommodate me with sleeping quarters at the Tana. He supplements the efforts of the Mohammedan employee by sending over a dish of sweetened chapatis. On the street leading out of Miran Serai is a very handsome and elaborately ornamented temple. Passing by early in the morning, I pay it a brief, unceremonious visit of inspection, kneeling on the steps and thrusting my helmeted head in to look about, not caring to go to the trouble of removing my shoes. Inside is an ancient Brahmin, engaged in sweeping out the floral offerings of the previous day. He favours me with the first indignant glance I have yet received in India. When I have satisfied my curiosity and withdrawn from the doorway, he comes out himself and shuts the beautifully chased brazen door with quite an angry slam. The day previous was the anniversary of Krishna's birth, and the blood of sacrificial goats and bullocks is smeared profusely about the altar. It is probably the enormity of an unhallowed believer in one god thrusting his infidel head inside the temple at this unseemly hour of the morning, while the blood of the mighty Krishna's sacrificial victims is scarcely dry on the walls, that arouses the righteous wrath of the old heathen priest. As well, indeed, it might. Passing through a village abounding in toddy-palms, I avail myself of an opportunity to investigate the merits of a beverage that I have been somewhat curious about since reaching India, having heard it spoken of so often. The famous palm-wine is merely the sap of the toddy-palm, collected much as is the sap from the maple-sugar groves of America, although the palm-juice is generally, if not always, obtained from the upper part of the trunk. When fresh, its taste resembles sweetened water. In a day or two fermentation sets in, and it changes to a beverage that, except for slightly alcoholic purposes, might readily be mistaken for vinegar and water. Every little village or hamlet one passes through, south of Agra, seems laudably determined to own a god of some sort. Those whose finances fail to justify them in sporting a nice red-painted god with gilt trimmings, sometimes console themselves with a humble little two-dollar soapstone deity that looks as if it has been rudely chipped into shape by some unskilful prentice hand. God-making is a highly respectable and lucrative profession in India, but only those able to afford it can expect the luxury of a nice painted and varnished deity right to their hand every day. People cannot expect a first-class deity for a couple of rupees, although the best of everything is generally understood to be the cheapest in the end. It takes money to buy marble, red paint, and gold leaf. A bowl of pulse porridge, sweet and gluey, is prepared and served up in a big banyan leaf at noon by a villager. In the same village is one of those very old and shriveled men peculiar to India. From appearances he must be nearly a hundred years old. His skin resembles the epidermis of a mummy, and hangs in wrinkles about his attenuated frame. He spends most of his time smoking gudaku from a neat, 
little coconut hookah. The evening hour brings me to Cornpore, down a fine broad street divided in the centre by a canal, with flights of stone steps for banks and a double row of trees, a street far broader and finer than the Chandni Chuk, and into a hotel kept by a Parsi gentleman named Baramji. Life at this hostelry is made of more than passing interest by the familiar manner in which frogs, lizards, and birds invade the privacy of one's apartments. Not one of these is harmful, but one naturally grows curious about whether a cobra, or some other less desirable member of the reptile world, is not likely at any time to join their interesting company. The lizards scale the walls and ceiling in search of flies. Frogs hop sociably about the floor, and a sparrow now and then twitters in and out. A two-weeks drought has filled the farmers of the Cornpores district with grave apprehensions concerning their crops, but enough rain falls tonight to gladden all their hearts, and also to leak badly through the roof of my bedroom. My punkawalla here is a regular automaton. He has acquired the valuable accomplishment of pulling the punkah string back and forth in his sleep. He keeps it up some time after I have quitted the room in the morning, until a comrade comes round and wakes him up. For three days the rains continue almost without interruption, raining as much as seven inches in one night. Slight breaks occur in the downpour during which it is possible to get about and take a look at the memorial gardens and the native town. The memorial gardens and the well enclosed therein commemorate one of the most pathetic incidents of the mutiny. The brutal massacre by Nana Saib of about two hundred English women and children. This arch-fiend held supreme sway over corn poor from June the 6th, 1857, till July the 15th, and in that brief period committed some of the most atrocious deeds of treachery and devilry that have ever been recorded. Backed by a horde of bloodthirsty mutineers, he committed deeds the memory of which causes tears of pity for his victims to come unbidden into the eyes of the English tourist thirty years after. Delicate ladies, who from infancy had been the recipients of tender care and consideration, were herded together in stifling rooms with the thermometer at a hundred and twenty degrees in the shade, marched through the broiling sun for miles, subjected to heart-rending privations, and at length finally butchered together with their helpless children. After the treacherous massacre of the few surviving Englishmen, at the Sooty Chauragout. The remaining women and children were reserved for further cruelties, and the final act of Nana's fiendish vengeance. From the graphic account of this murderous period of Cornpore's history contained in the Tourist's Guide to Cornpore, is quoted the following brief account of Nana's consummate deed of devilment. But the Nana's reign of terror was now drawing to a close, though not to terminate without a stroke destined to make the civilized world shudder from end to end. He was now to put the finishing touch to his work of mischief. The counsels of the wicked were being troubled. Danger was on its way. 
Stories were brought in by scouting sepoys of terrible bronzed men coming up the Grand Trunk Road, before whose advance the rebel hosts were fleeing like chaff and dust before the fan of the threshing floor. Futipur had fallen, and disaster had overtaken the rebel forces at Ayon. Reinforcements were dispatched by Nana in rapid succession, but all was of no avail. On came Havelock and his handful of heroes, carrying everything before them in their determination to rescue the hapless women and children imprisoned at Cawnpore. About noon, on July the 15th, a few troopers came in from the south and informed Nana that his last reinforcement had met the same fate as the others, and reported that the English were coming up the road like mad horses, caring for neither cannon nor musketry, nor did these appear to have any effect on them. The guilty Nana, with the blood of the recent treacherous massacre on his hands, grew desperate at the hopelessness of the situation, and called a council of war. What plans could they devise to keep out the English? What steps could they adopt to stay their advance? The conclusion arrived at in that council of human tigers could have found expression nowhere save in the brains of Asiatics, illogical and diabolically cruel. We will destroy the maims and babalogues, they said, and inform the English force of it. They will then be disheartened and go back for they are only a handful in number. How the unfortunate innocents were butchered in cold blood in the Bibi Gurch where they were confined, by sepoys who gloried in trying their skill at severing the ladies' heads from their bodies at one cut, in splitting little children in twain, and in smearing themselves with the blood of their helpless victims, is too harrowing a tale to dwell upon here. On the following morning the mangled bodies of both dead and dying were cast into the well over which now hovers the marble representation of the pitying angel. When the victorious relieving force scattered Nana's remaining forces and entered the city two days later, instead of the living forms of those they had made such heroic efforts to save, they looked down the well and saw their ghastly remains. In this lovely garden where all is now so calm and peaceful, scarcely does it seem possible that beneath the marble figure of this pitying angel repose the dust of two hundred of England's gentle martyrs, whose murdered and mutilated forms but thirty years ago choked up the well into which they were tossed. While I stand and read the sorrowful inscription it rains a gentle, soft, unpattering shower are these gentle droppings the tender tribute of angels' tears? I wonder, and does it always rain so soft and noiselessly here as it does today? No natives are permitted in this garden without special permission, and an English soldier keeps sentinel at the entrance gate instead of the sepoy usually found on such duty. The memory of this tragedy seems to hang over Cawnpore like a cloud even to this day, and to cause a feeling of bitterness in the minds of Englishmen 
who everywhere else regard the natives about them with no other feelings than of the kindliest possible nature. Other monuments of the mutiny exist, notably the memorial church, a splendid Lombard Gothic structure erected in memoriam of those who fell in the mutiny here. The church is full of tablets commemorating the death of distinguished people, and the stained-glass windows are covered with the names of the victims of Nana Sahib's treachery, and of those who fell in action. Cawnpore is celebrated for the number and extensiveness of its manufactures, and might almost be called the Manchester of India. Woollen, cotton, and jute mills abound leather factories in various kindred industries giving employment to millions of capital and thousands of hands. A stroll through the native quarter of any Indian city is interesting, and Cawnpore is no exception. One sees buildings and courts, the decorations and general appearance of which leave the beholder in doubt as to whether they are theatre or temple. Music and tom-tomming would seem rather to suggest the former, but upon entering one sees fakirs and Hindu devotees streaked with clay fanciful paintings and hideous idols, and all the cheap pomp and pageantry of idolatrous worship. Strolling into one of these places, an attendant, noting my curious gazing, presents himself and points to a signboard containing characters as meaningless to me as Aztec hieroglyphics. In one narrow street a crowd of young men are struggling violently for position about a door, where an old man is slinging handfuls of yellow powder among the crowd. The struggling men are aspirants for the honour of having a portion of the powder alight on their persons. I inquire of a native bystander what it all means. The explanation is politely given, but being in the vernacular of the country, it is wasted on the unprofitable soil of my own lingual ignorance. Impatient to be getting along, I misinterpret a gleam of illusory sunshine at noon on the third day of the rainstorm and pull out, taking a cursory glance at the memorial church as I go. A drenching shower overtakes me in the native military lines, compelling me to seek shelter for an hour beneath the portico of their barracks. The road is perfectly level and smooth, and well-rounded, so that the water drains off and leaves it better wheeling than ever, and with alternate showers and sunshine I have no difficulty in covering thirty-four miles before sunset. This brings me to a caravanserai, consisting of a quadrangular enclosure with long rows of cell-like rooms. The whole structure is much inferior to a Persian caravanserai but there is probably no need of the big brick structures of Shah Abbas in a winterless country like India. Interesting subjects are not wanting for my camera through the day, but the greatest difficulty is experienced about changing the negatives at night. A small lantern with a very feeble light, made still more feeble by interposing red paper, suffices for my own purpose but the too attentive Chowkidar, observing that my room is in darkness, and fancying that my light has gone out accidentally, comes flaring in with a torch, sensiting the sensitive negatives with destruction. End of section 31